This time, we tiptoe our way through watching A Quiet Place. And along the way, we ask, how did John Krasinski go from office prankster to survivalist family man? Why would anyone want to have a baby during the apocalypse? And finally, what box does this film check? Folks back home, get ready for another episode of Force-Fed Sci-Fi. Hey everyone, welcome back to this week's episode of Force-Fed Sci-Fi. I am one of your co-hosts, the quiet Sean Michael Cope, and along with me is my friend and co-host... I am the quiet man, Chris Rupp. <laughs> well, this episode definitely won't be quiet, that's for sure. No, I think if we were living in the world of the Abbott family and a quiet place, we would instantly be found out by one of those creatures, or you would be killed right away with your obnoxious laugh. <laughs> that is very true. I was thinking about that while watching this show. I'm like, would I survive this? Probably not. Rock on. No, you talk, you talk too loud to survive this world. No, absolutely. There's no chance. I, I'm a loud mouth. I inherited that from my uh, lovely family, you know? Speaking of which... <laughs> Do you have a loud family? Or like how how are you guys at the Rupp household? Uh my family is part Italian, so we have a genetic disposition to being loud. So yes, of course, <laughs> I live in a loud family. Rock on. So, so just imagine don't... a lot of yelling and a lot of hand signals and yes, you have a pretty broad overview of what arguments can be like in my household. <laughs> That's awesome. So there you go, folks. Chris Rupp's family. So, A Quiet Place, like we said, I think it's time to allow the, uh, the synopsis. What is this film about, Chris? Tell us. Right, so, the film, A Quiet Place, is centered around the Abbott family, and they have been forced to live in total silence since the invasion of an alien species that hunts its prey exclusively by sound. Literally, the tiniest sound imaginable can trigger to these creatures where their prey is and then they instantly go attack and kill it and through the film we they must journey to confront a very severe tragedy in their past and they must face the danger of the future in order to survive their new normal nightmare and it's the the film is fraught with tension and tension and horror throughout the entire film oh yeah that's I would say so. This film is super like on your feet. Um, not, I wouldn't say this film is like, uh, have you ever seen Uncut Gems? I have not seen that, no. So Uncut Gems basically feels like you're about to have an anxiety panic attack throughout the entire film due to just the rushing, anxiety-inducing, heart-racing Adam Sandler and his annoying self. This is more like, I would say, just tense, where you're just like white-knuckling, the couch because it's more like fear induced like oh my god are they gonna get caught <gasps> oh like you just want to hold your breath you know right instead we're we're on edge this entire time thinking that these creatures could be anywhere just waiting for a sound to go off and strike oh totally and that's and i i would like to say isn't that a fantastic idea to make creatures, you know, that go off of sound. Kudos to these, kudos to the writers. Um, speaking of like the writers who, so who, who made this conception? Like who, de who decided this uh, movie? We said John Krasinski, like he's the director. He's the man behind the madness. I think with this film, he, uh, it's his second film that he's directed. If I'm correct. Did you, did you see that? It's his third film that he's directed, but it's his first one for a major studio. So obviously Krasinski was really front and center with this whole thing. He directed it, he starred in it, and he wrote the film yeah. uh, along with Brian Woods and Scott Beck. And Krasinski, I mean, obviously he rose to, rose to prominence starring as Jim Halpert on The Office and really gained this kind of goofy reputation as the constant... Uh, prankster presence in the life of Dwight Schrute, but he also had this very lovable, boyish, goofy quality to him that everybody just came to adore about him. Oh, yeah. And have you seen The Office? 
Uh, bits and pieces. I'm not. I wouldn't consider myself a, a fan of the show. Okay, I would say, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen the show through. I think once. My girlfriend's seen it like a million times, but I would say your description of uh, uh, John in the show is pretty pretty on point. Jim is very, yeah, he's the office prankster. In this film, I would say up up until this film. Now I haven't seen tons of his films i know i saw him in i think jarhead for like a brief moment and he basically plays the same character that he played in the office so i wonder if he played majority he was the same character right up until this because i know now krasinski's kind of started to make it a name for himself as an actor and a director like this was totally different for him as a role i know he's taken on the uh what is that the tom clancy dude uh he is the new jack ryan in the amazon prime series yeah 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 yeah. i always see commercials for that on like youtube where he's like i'm the only one that's gonna get you out of here or whatever i haven't seen it um to me it just seems kind of weird seeing him play that role but after watching this movie uh i might check it out because He's just so serious in this movie, but he has that certain vulnerability as the father. I could see him maybe pulling off the Jack Ryan character. Yeah, if we're going to come up with a list of Hollywood actors who would be considered hunky and you know <laughs> capable of pulling off action roles, I think John Krasinski would be at the bottom of that list. Right? Like, you think of all the greats in the, that type of series. I mean, obviously, Harrison Ford is probably the best Jack Ryan, and then... I would say it's tough between Ben Affleck and Alec Baldwin, but you know, I mean, those those two characters as Jack Ryan don't really strike me. I guess Harrison Ford kind of made that character his own, you know, a name for himself with the uh, charismatic persona of who he is. Not to go f- too far down the Tom Clancy Jack Ryan rabbit hole, but if we're gonna talk, who was? in the best Jack Ryan film, then it's Alec Baldwin in the hunt for red October. But you think Jack Ryan is almost, yeah. Jack Ryan is almost secondary in that, in that film. Cause it's all about the red October and Sean Connery and the Russian submarine. And Ben Affleck is, well, I think I've made my thoughts pretty clear on Ben Affleck on over Over the the course (laughs) of this show. And he, and he's easily in the worst Tom Clancy film that was ever made with, the sum of all fears but harrison ford by the virtue of being harrison ford makes his movies 10 times better than they would be with anybody else so yes clear and present danger and patriot games are great films but as far as the best jack ryan film goes that belongs to the hud for red october oh yeah i mean it does how can you have a film about a russian submarine when the captain doesn't speak with a russian accent only sean connery folks (laughs) he's the only one that can pull it off so John Krasinski, very much front and center of A Quiet Place, having a writer credit directed and starring in it, and starring alongside with his real-life spouse, Emily Blunt, plays Evelyn Abbott in this film. She's great in this film. I think he... that You never see that too often, where the spouses uh, play together in a movie. And sometimes I've heard that it works, sometimes it doesn't, but I think he really... They struck gold with this, with her. Emily Blunt is just, she's such a talented actress, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I I don't think I've seen her in a bad film ever. And no. they it's clear that they have such powerful on-screen chemistry together. And like you said, it's very rare to see that when spouses star together in films. Yeah. I mean, and she, and he knows how to, it's all, it's pretty fascinating seeing them work together, how I think uh, John picks all the best moments for his wife on the emotional dial, and he really highlights her acting chops. I think in many, many of her scenes uh, involve a lot of emotion, emotional weight, emotional depth, where she has to scream, yell, and I think, I think she in this film is far superior but I think as an actor, he knows how great of an actress his wife is. And he just he highlights that throughout this entire film. He really uses her to her full potential, in my opinion. Oh, and it doesn't just extend to Emily Blunt. Even the actors they cast to play their children, Millicent Simmons and Noah Jupe, are 
are incredible. They're able to display a wide breadth of emotions and you don't feel like even despite them being children, you don't feel like that the movie drags or becomes about the children at any point. It's about this family and their experience together. No one, no one is meant to be above or below anybody else. They're all on a very even plane. Yeah, it's very rare to see because like with Phantom Menace, we've talked about how that's kind of the example of child acting gone wrong. And with this film, it's more so child acting going to essentially the highest potential that it can be because these uh, the kids that play uh, their children, I mean, they're not that old, but I mean, I would say they're like teens, maybe. And they really just knock it out of the park with such a heavy emotional content and being so believable. I think I think he's great. Like, John is directing already. I haven't seen in many of his movies, but they crushed it. They totally crushed it. I read that Millicent Simmons actually was responsible for two of the big poignant emotional scenes between her and her father when the scene initially when he's trying to give her the new hearing aid and she rebuffs him by saying it doesn't work it never works she mm-hmm. that was her suggestion and then near the end when um krasinski's character lee sacrifices himself to save his children she came up with the suggestion of signing i have always loved you that was that was her suggestion and i thought that was two very well thought emotional ideas from a relatively young actress oh absolutely great choice she makes, I think they just made a lot of great choices in this film. Um, maybe that happens. Maybe that came because, like, everyone, the director's an actor, and so are, you know, with the cast, so they kind of understand or are more willing to accept augmentations to the script and the direction, letting the actors play, so forth, to go in that direction. But she, that, that was such a good line. I was just getting chills when you said that. <laughs> It's just, it's yeah, I think very it. Moving. I, I think it definitely helps to have a small cast, and when your leading cast member, so to speak, is the director, I think it helps to really open up the creativity in terms of character choices and even dialogue to a lesser extent. I mean, as much as you can pull off in a film like this, to really open up the room and let the creative juices flow. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know much about the uh, pre-production that went into this film? Well, it was made on a really tiny budget, as we see with a lot yes. of horror sci-fi films, especially with one that's trying to introduce that that is an original story. But Krasinski came onto the project pretty early. He read the script in 2016 and sold it to Paramount the next year, where he was then hired to rewrite the script and direct the film. And... I did read that Emily Blunt was initially hesitant to be cast. She did not want to be cast in this film until she read the script and knew that her husband was directing it and then asked to be cast in it. <laughs> and then that would be funny if he was like, nope, sorry, <laughs> sorry, this uh, this isn't for you. <laughs> that would be the ultimate slight. Well, yeah, I'm always interested to see how actor couples work and if they read each other's scripts or projects and wonder if they're just brutally honest with each other, like, honey, I don't think you're right for this. <laughs> I didn't write this role with you in mind, babe. I'm sorry. I was thinking more Meryl Streep, Jennifer Lawrence. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you what? <laughs> that would just be. It's oh, like, you mean, do you want Jennifer Lawrence to play your wife? What is this? <laughs> I'm your wife. <laughs> we need therapy now. Oh, God. So well, that's cool. I didn't know that uh, she she's like says yeah, I have to be in it. But that's I hey kudos for uh, them for reading his production for his script and then allowing him to come and direct it and rewrite it. So I think that's pretty rad on the studio's part. This is a safe film to bring on a relatively new director like Krasinski. It has a small budget. It has a small cast. Mm-hmm. I mean, the studio probably isn't going to be invested too heavily in the marketing or just care so much whether the film does well. I think if the film had made 50 to $60 million, it still would have been considered a large success. And Krasinski probably would have gotten subsequent opportunities to direct more films. Oh yeah. And they, and I mean, now 
he does with the sequel coming out. And I think that's that's pretty I, that's pretty common from what I've seen with a lot. You don't normally see studios nowadays just like thrusting like a Marvel esque film in the hands of a very novice director. Usually they give them the low budget a couple times and say, "All right, let's see what you can do with this young man. Make the magic come." And he did by all intents purposes. And from what I saw, a lot of their budget wasn't even spent on too many sound stages. Like I was reading that they spent it more like locally having like farmers grow all the crops and everything. So it wasn't all CGI'd. No, this film definitely looks to have a bigger budget than what's on paper. You see $17 million and then you watch the film and you think, wow, this feels like a hundred million dollar project. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's the, that's the, uh, talent of the studio the choices of the landscape but also the director for being able to make use of such because the area i mean if you actually watch the film detail where they spend most of the time most of the time is spent on the farm but it looks pretty and the usage of space it seems the world does feel kind of small but at the same time broad and i think it introduces the film introduces so much landscape and pretty features that you don't realize, oh, it only takes place in like a couple mile radius, you know? Yeah, we're lulled into this false sense of idyllicness and tranquility with the mere setting and the lack of sound. Because yeah. for the first five minutes or so, we don't know what what necessitated everybody being silent like this until unfortunately poor Bo wants to play with his toy and is <laughs> brutally killed for it yeah yeah that that that's that's a tough opening where they kill off their youngest son cuz basically it, to give a little preface for people that haven't seen it spoilers i guess uh, they're like shopping for medicine they're like raiding let's say a cvs because the oldest son is like having issues with he's like sick i couldn't figure out what was wrong. i thought he was like a diabetic or something and uh so this kid finds like a toy spaceship and it's got batteries and you're supposed to be quiet and so they take out the batteries but then the daughter gives the batteries in the ship back to the kid after the parents leaves the kid pushes the button and gets eaten by a monster and it's uh Right in like the first five minutes. What a brutal, brutal opening. Yeah, that sound of Bo playing with the toy, that's the first sound of the entire film. And yeah. right away we get that music cue, courtesy of Marco Beltrami, like this is not a good thing that there is sound happening right now. No, you. it's kind of, it strikes the audience because it's so quiet. Their usage of sound in the score of this film, I would say, is absolutely 10 out of 10 um it just what a what a brilliant choice to especially for a newish director to like take on a project where we're not going to utilize the dialogue too much but they they do it i mean it's it's tough but it's such a great depiction of killing the sun because it shows just how powerless they are to these creatures early on so it sets the precedent early well and even we get these sound stingers throughout the film and after Bo dies where we see about a year later life has gone on for the family they're yeah. kind of going about their business on the farm you know after dinner they're playing a board game and then Marcus knocks over that lantern and it is that lantern breaking is definitely loud and we are clearly <laughs> not expecting it and all of a sudden we were transported back to poor little Bo's death where we think oh sound is bad and yeah. right away we see Lee running over there with sound with, to to put out the fire and the smallest sound in this world literally means life or death and it's we just get these small sound stingers throughout the film that that are used to great effect <laughs> so do you actually think though the aliens could hear that like the little uh thing falling over like inside the house, wouldn't the house like cause enough uh, enough shield against like the f the glass that fell over? I don't know. I mean, they were. I mean, we see throughout the film just what these creatures are capable of doing. Eh? They move pretty quick, and they're able yeah. to sense to hear these sounds that we think are innocuous from a very long way away. So it's entirely possible they could have heard yeah. that sound and come running or. 
or the the lantern broke and then they didn't hear any sounds after that and just gave up i don't yeah i don't know but then turns out it's not creatures on the roof it's just raccoons that are <laughs> that are somehow up on a 20 foot roof just you know hustling around like it's no but like it's no big deal up there hey man they got thumbs maybe they climbed up those damn raccoons speaking of raccoons those things are creepy as hell at night like if you ever see them coming at you i've seen them like a pack of three like crawling across the ground in like 11 o'clock at night and it is terrifying that is the only time in my life where i've been like i think i need a gun i need a gun (laughs) (laughs) man raccoons are not that 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 scary it's possums you gotta watch out for possums oh yeah positive well i feel like any animal with rabies is just like a bad day it's just not a fun time (laughs) yeah but i think i think if a film has the word quiet in there okay then sound is the most important element of the entire film how you use it what scenes are you using it and uh, that sounds within the film and then also the score that you use and i think marco beltrami did a tremendous job i mean Granted, the, uh, to me, the score kind of skews a bit more towards horror at times, mm-hmm. but I think it's just indicative of how well-rounded of a composer he is, because he does, he composes films across multiple genres. He's done action, sci-fi, romantic films, and it's it just fits perfectly in with the overall sound design of the film. Well, that's how you know he's such a, they picked a talented guy if he's not pigeonholed into that. What I I totally agree. <laughs> also, they used uh, sign language, like actual ASL sign language in the movie. I guess they hired like interpreters um, to actually show the actors how they they should sign because, like we said, the daughter is deaf in the in the film, and so they it was. I guess apparently it was perfect. Yeah, Millicent Simmons is also deaf in real life, and she was able to coach oh, snap. her other fellow actors about you know how to properly use ASL in different points throughout the film. Oh, she's actually deaf? How crazy is that? I didn't know that. Yeah, Krasinski was in there. He, he said right away that he wanted to be intentional about casting a deaf actress in the role to properly convey you know what it what it means to be deaf well how brilliant okay all right that totally makes sense i'm like there's no way this person is that good it just she was great okay and that's a good choice on his point because if you actually have someone that's actually deaf they then they can focus on the acting portion and can bring that um dosage of reality to the situation whereas i feel like if they had an actual actor that could hear and was portraying someone that was deaf there you do have the propensity to overact and ham it up right there there can be that tendency at some points but well where it turns into jared leto from blade runner 2049 mr blind (laughs) jesus christ No, we we feel we see that this is very like her being deaf is is a central part to her character. I mean, it's the reason why she has the the cochlear implant. I mean, and mm-hmm. she really she plays a very central part in the film, not only as the eldest child, but then later on in the film when we find out that her implant and the adjusting the the frequency of it is what brings these creatures to their weakness. Yeah. Yep, that's right. That uh, the high frequency, correct? It like opens up their because their their face, I guess, like they're armored, so their face opens up and exposes the soft insides of their mind, which allows Emily Blunt to shotgun them to death. Which is an amazing scene. If, oh. if we're going to talk about that, <laughs> heck yeah! What'd you think of that shotgun scene? Because she's such a badass. Like after, especially after day after tomorrow. Uh, uh, live, die, repeat. I mean, and uh, what else? Uh, Looper. She's just so awesome. Yeah, and that scene—that's another scene that's just filled with tension because we don't know, like, if they're gonna be found out. What sound is gonna set off this creature? And then, uh, Millicent Simmons' character is able to figure out. Hey, I've seen 
them freak out with this frequency thing before so she does that and then you know emily blunt shoots it right in the head and (laughs) i love this film is has one of my all-time favorite endings where they figured out how to kill these creatures we see two of them are going to run into the house and the last shot is emily blunt tilting up that shotgun and cocking it just saying all right we're gonna get them that that was awesome uh, typical it almost like turned into an action film for a moment i kind of hope the second one has like a montage of dush, 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 dush. but that would be <laughs> that would be so hammer hammy yeah if we don't get some serious alien killing in the first 10 minutes of the sequel <laughs> then i might be a tad disappointed <laughs> oh man so uh the big i think we're discussing prior to this film uh, the differences in interpretation because I know this film is kind of like there's a division on what people thought it it meant at the time that it came out you know with like our political landscape that's going on etc so what did you take from like what did what did you think about the themes of this you know in in re-watching the film you know it, it's People, I think other people want to try and pull out the social commentary of it. And sometimes a film is just a film and with a much simpler theme than you think it is. Um, but John Krasinski has remarked that the central theme of the film is parenthood. Yeah. I mean, parenthood top to bottom, you know, dealing with loss as a parent, raising your children in, you know, an uncertain time. And oddly enough, this notion of parenthood has become politicized by a wide margin of people yeah a lot of the i think a lot of the writers wrote wrote to him and made a bunch of articles saying like how um well they criticized the film because they said it was a bunch of white people you know it's the typical white family living on a farm and that them isolating themselves on a farm being attacked by aliens was, I guess, from my understanding, was white people rejecting change in America, like the the resistance of change and like the shift of the cultural landscape. And I mean, I guess you can like if you analyze it. I mean, if someone in college, that sounds to me like something that came from a college professor, (laughs) you know, like from a social class. Yeah, that came from like a cultural anthropologist or something, because I, I, I did not get that feeling from the film at all, because they're able to roll with the changes of this world pretty quickly, and they want to stay, I mean, obviously they stay in their hometown, but they, they're they able to make some pretty significant changes to their lives. I mean, well, yeah, <laughs> I'm assuming they already know sign language, um, you know, with their oldest daughter being deaf, and, but John Krasinski, Lee's character lays sand throughout the town so they don't make any noise when they walk. They eat their food on these, you know, gigantic vegetable leaves. They don't use utensils. They don't have any game pieces for their board games because that would make noise. I mean, they have made some pretty significant changes to their lives over the course of just a year. So I don't know if I buy into the whole, oh, white people refuse to change narrative that anyone wants to affix to this film. I like flight. I mean, they can if they want i just i don't know i guess that's like the thing when it comes to art it's always up to people's interpretation um of the product you know because once you put art out there a lot of people say it's not yours anymore it's up to the whims of the critics um but i just i it's tough because when the director and like there's a division in reviews where they're like oh it's about parenthood and I mean, I took away from it as parenthood. I felt like it had a lot of elements of, you know, the kid, the female, the daughter making a bad choice, costing the family. She feels like a screw up. And then the characters overcoming the aliens, the sacrifice of the father. Like, you know, everyone had building and they uh, satisfied their arcs. And the whole thing, I mean, the whole conflict i felt like the whole that was going on outside of the aliens if you can look past the the aliens to me was like the environment but the whole conflict was the daughter didn't think her dad loved her and they all felt like weak 
and um, she just wanted his love. And then that's why her line, I think, like you said at the end, I always have, you know, that's brilliant. I mean, <laughs> I'm just getting chills thinking about it because it was just perfect. It was just a beautiful bow to uh, fulfill that, you know, he always cared and loved you. That's, I think, the film is about love. Yeah, there there has been some weird extrapolation of themes from both sides of the political aisle. There's people who say this, you know, has heavy religious themes with a pro-life message. And then there's other people who are calling this the antithesis of Get Out. There's, you know, with heavy pro-gun messages. It's it's weird how in just a very short span of time, this film has become this politicized uh, piece of media. I think it's just a reflection of our culture. I mean, if you dig into anything, you can find political, like politics in anything. I mean, any type of modicum of media. So if you fish, you will catch something. Yeah, I think it, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's it's it is about parenthood top to bottom. But I mean, deeper within that, it's how to raise your children in an uncertain time. Yeah. And how to how to prepare your children to go forth and survive and thrive in a world full of uncertainty. Yeah, I can I can buy that totally. Absolutely. Because like you said, they change. They have to adapt with all the craziness. Yeah. And, and this is summed up best in the film when Lee takes little Marcus out on that trip to go get more fish. And he explains to him how the sound works in the world. And we see this this great moment between Marcus and Lee, you know, asking, you know, do, are you upset at her? Do you blame her? Talking about his sister, Lee's daughter. And also, like, oh, well, of course, I still love her. And Marcus looking at him, does she know that? Oh. And it's this <laughs> great moment between father and son about like, hey, you know, We've all suffered. We've all had to deal with the loss of Bo, but we've never talked about it. And then within the the theme of parenthood and preparing your children for a future, there's also this there's this other layer of familial guilt. Mm-hmm. Everybody at one point in the film has this conversation with someone else or with to themselves about is there more I could have done to save Bo? Yeah. They I, uh, I think it, they covered so many topics that are really important to raising children and having uh, a healthy relationship with your family members or in any type of relationship to ask the hard questions and forgive and all that to communicate. And so I think I think you hit it on the head. Absolutely. Yeah. Who would have known that little Marcus would be able to get through to his dad? Like, just tell her you love her every now and then, you know? <laughs> Dude, you know, I mean, that's that's the thing about children. They're honest and they they rule man. at times. At times they rule and then at times they're a pain in the ass. So that's life. Oh, yeah. I uh, I call little children. I mean, yeah, little kids are cute and all, but it's like living with a witness for the prosecution because they will repeat <laughs> every freaking thing you say. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh man. How did you uh what did you think of the monsters in this? I know I saw a lot of criticism saying like they're too CGI looking. It was the hashtag worst part of the film. But how what'd you think? I would not call it the worst part of the film because the film already is so good and fraught with tension already that granted I could have done with a little less visual less visuals of the monsters, a la Jaws. But at the same time, I'm not going to call these monsters, oh, they're the worst thing, worst part of the film, because that's just not true. I mean, you're creating a whole new original story with original looking monsters. I mean, yeah, are they going to look similar to other type of monsters or things we see in the world? Absolutely, because that's where you draw inspiration. But no, to say they're the worst part of the film is a bit of a stretch for me. Yeah, like I didn't think the CGI was that bad, that it was so like horrible that it would take me out, you know? I I I felt like the CGI was fine for what it was, you know, it's a seventeen million dollar budget and you can't pull that stuff off with practical effects. Um I think I, they had that great scene where she's in the basements like flooded 
and then the monster's head comes right up to like the waterfall. It kind of made me think of I think Jurassic Park two, where the mo- where the T Rex's face like goes through. Yeah, there's a lot of great scenes with the the creatures in them. I mean, especially the scene where Evelyn is gonna give birth to the baby, oh, and then man. turns out there's the monster is in the house with her. Great! Oh, that was so awesome. Her like uh, stepping on the nail. I mean, they have got so many solids. I think they utilized the monsters very well. They and there wasn't. I don't think there were too many jump scares for this to be like the typical horror movie trope. Did you think so at all, or because that that triggers me? The only time we get like a like a real jump scare, quote unquote, is when they find the the old man in the woods, and then his we see the old man's wife is dead on the ground. That's really the only jump scare we get. But I wouldn't even call that a full jump scare. Screw that old man. <laughs> <laughs> that's like my lens flare you douchebag like why why would you it's uh, he's also i think by like red shirt that or the nail like what what was the point of the old man like your wife is dead she's been dead for how long and then you wait till someone walks by you to be like well screw you guys if my wife dies everyone's gonna die it's like f you man no i think that was more that old man kind of giving up i mean his wife is is now dead. I don't think he he didn't have a reason to go on, and that was just him yeah. giving up. And regardless of other people are there, he he <laughs> did not care anymore, and he was gonna go out and go out hard. <laughs> I'm gonna kill everyone. Uh, still a great tense scene, though. To be honest, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, as you were saying, still that's still a tense scene because we see Lee and Marcus run away and. We don't see the the creature killing the old man, but we could definitely hear all the crunching and the the clicking noises that the creature is making. So another great tense scene in this film. Absolutely, absolutely. But and, I, and the yeah, but I think the scene of Evelyn trying to hide from the creature in her house, I think that has to belong in the pantheon of great horror movie scenes because she's defenseless. She she doesn't have anyone around to help her and. Pregnant. If this creature finds her, it's going to kill her and the baby. Mm-hmm. This great tension. Great tension. The creatures were great. I think they were perfectly utilized to build tension as well as I th- I saw them as like a barometer to, as we uh, to like weigh our growth of the characters. Because like at the end, finally, like the kids are strong enough, you know, to run away and they don't just like hide in fear they actually help their mom you know she can help defend and beat the monsters i think perfect i can't really find too many elements in this film to be mad at but a for creatures man (laughs) a for aliens yeah (laughs) i want to ask you this can you imagine this film if it were set in an urban city environment instead of a secluded farm uh, no, I, I think if it was set in an urban area, that would take away from the film. It would be more like a Godzilla-esque where there would just be too many obstacles, too many places to hide, and it would detract from the isolated feel that these characters have. Like The big cost of them uh, is being basically in the middle of the woods where any creature could get you at any time. Whereas if they were like in the urban area, I imagine a lot of people are gathered there. So you could just build up a barrier and attack as opposed to being like in the middle of the wilderness. Also, uh, cities are loud. So I feel like cities were the first places to get picked off. Oh, yeah. Those those creatures would have a field day with all the sounds bouncing off the buildings in an urban environment. Mm-hmm. It's just too. I'm glad they picked uh, the farm. I think it was the perfect setting for this film well yeah great horror films i think have the a great setting and it's the reason why you know we think of a cabin in the woods or you know a luxurious mansion that's secluded as you know you know two of the most iconic settings of a horror film yeah because it plays into the isolation you you get it in your head that they're they're far out in the middle of nowhere and no one is coming to help you. Oh, yeah, because if they can just go to a 7-Eleven or something down the street and get a friend, that kind of detracts from the what they have to deal with. 
Plus, those monsters were kind of big, so you could always find like a tight spot to get them trapped in, and like a skyscraper. Oh yeah, those monsters were probably about the size of a Winnebago. They were massive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all you have to do is go up a nice winding staircase, or like go, you know, a tight office. The, those monsters wouldn't even know. <laughs> or just like start like kicked out of a window and start banging on the outside. They just all jump off. Choo, choo, choo. Go on the top of the Willis Tower. <laughs> That's an easy way to get rid of them. Uh, well, we talked about this at the at the beginning of the show, but do you really think that you would have a decent chance of surviving in this world? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think I'm too loud and I don't have the tools to farm, nor am I that proficient at catching my own food. I am a terrible, terrible human being. Survi- survivalist, I would say. I use uh, microwave meals. I eat sandwiches from Jewel Osco. So no, I would, I would be the first to die. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> you know, I, I like to think that I am a person who would try to uh, carry on in spite of the circumstances and whatever happens happens but i wouldn't be the type of person to just give up and say oh i'm gonna scream as loud as i can and the creatures are gonna get me so i, I <laughs> i'd like to think that i i would survive or at least try to survive in this world and if i get killed i get killed <laughs> but then I'll, I, I'll know that i tried in some way as long as i put forth the effort that's that's good at least you're a try guy you know <laughs> That that yeah, the, just yell out like John Krasinski. I th- I think I saw some uh, angry posts on IMDb about that. Maybe for like toxic fandom, they're like, well, he could have just thrown a heavy wrench at the wall in the month. He didn't have to sacrifice himself for his children. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because <laughs> I did find something for this week in toxic fandom and. The goof section of IMDb was goof. just fraught with criticisms of Lee and Evelyn's parenting skills. It was just, it's like, really? Like, they're doing the best they can in their <laughs> apoc- in their apocalyptic world. But to me, this was the most egregious one I found. And it said that some of Lee and Evelyn's behavior is completely unrealistic given the situation <laughs> that they're in. Bo's death, for example, could have been present- prevented easily if they had simply monitored his actions more closely, <laughs> e.g. by not allowing him to wander around the store and supervise slash not leaving in there alone, or by using the common sense strategy of one parent in front for recon and one in the back to keep an eye on everyone. <laughs> It's like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm not on uh, the Ghost Recon team. I mean, I did personally think of that while um, watching the film. I was like, why is this kid left in the back? You know, the youngest one. If anything, put the deaf girl or, you know. But I also get that Emily Blunt was caring for the older brother. So she was kind of like attached to him. And John Krasinski's character was leading the way. So... Maybe they could have put everyone in between, but we also then wouldn't have had a movie or a conflict. So poop on you. <laughs> right. Just parenting pedants just got their their panties in a wad after watching this film and just had to take to the Internet, though. Oh, of course. Right. You just. Oh, my God. I saw a couple of them where they felt like it was unrealistic about the sound. They felt like. Oh, well, like I said with the one of the man in the woods, how he apparently had no self-control to not vocally react to his wife when it actually happened. But when Lee and Marcus pass him, he suddenly has to scream, even though it now puts more people than him in danger. (laughs) Someone got so... Newsflash, it's a movie! (laughs) Someone got so mad at that. I mean, I, I, I guess they could, if you were to nitpick, sure. Like, the sound thing was a little, they did struggle with the barometer of, like, what was loud. Because, sure, with the fireworks scene, the the entire farm would have been swarmed with the uh, aliens. You know, when she's pregnant and such. But at the same token, how do you know that the fireworks weren't too loud? And actually caused the aliens to disperse because their ears couldn't handle it. Man, I don't know. I mean, I always say this. It's a movie. It's a movie, man. <laughs> but with every movie comes a toxic fan. Yeah, and those were things that bothered other people. But, Sean, did you have something that bothered you? I mean, you you mentioned 
uh, you know your your lens flare a little while ago with the old man but was that you was that your only one i think other than i mean i thought the nail was great and awful at the same time um i was kind of confused why there was such a big nail left in the middle of the stairs but i mean i also get maybe they didn't want to pull it out because it would cause too much noise but that kind of that scene kind of bothered me because i'm like oh come on she doesn't need the nail like to stab herself impale herself through the foot but you know it raises the tension so i got that though to uh go on a side quest alexis while we were watching the film was like hey sean you know what would be funny what if like it was a trope in the movie every time a person went down the stairs they stepped on the nail ah! <laughs> like the aliens at the end going down the stairs <laughs> and they all just like barrel roll down the steps. yeah emily blunt and daniel stern from home alone now share the cinematic distinction of having stepped on a nail god that was so painful to watch i, I actually didn't watch it to be honest i closed my eyes because oh i just hate that type of stuff yeah, I, I remember seeing this in a theater and everybody let out a collective ooh when she stepped on that nail because that, that sound design, it was it got all squishy there and you knew instantly <laughs> what she did that it just, oh no, oh, it went through God, her foot. That is that is a painful thing. I've, st I've stepped on a nail before and it's not fun. But hey, kudos to her. She stepped on a nail, avoided an alien, and gave birth. She is a super mom. Like that is, that is brilliance <laughs> right there. You know, well- my lens flare and yeah, my lens flare. I mean, and while we're sticking in with that scene or that collection of scenes and while we have talked about how great this scene is, I would have to go with how quick Emily Blunt is able to push out that baby. <laughs> that is true. Unless she gave the push to end all pushes. There is no way that baby is coming out in two minutes. There just no way on God's green earth. <laughs> <laughs> just woo popped right out of there baby <laughs> uh, i didn't think of that that's hilarious actually i think alexis said that that that's right oh my god she just like pops that thing out of there like a wine like a champagne bottle yeah just real quick fireworks are done john krasinski shows up boom we have a baby like well like okay that was quick <laughs> that's all it takes man just just quick pop I, I guess i guess they redefined birth you know and no epidural either good lord yeah no drugs no nothing she was just like this baby is coming out and i'm gonna push as hard as i can <laughs> so so ladies that are listening to this if you have ever had children uh is it possible to give birth in less than two minutes can you just like shoot it out of there like the popping bottles like champagne or anything. Yeah, right still, still not possible. <laughs> well, uh, that's good, man. Did you have any uh, yellow shirts or anything? You know, I did. I had a yellow shirt, but normally here and at this point in the show, I would have chosen that poor little raccoon that got slaughtered as my red shirt. <laughs> but quite frankly, I was impressed that I was able to survive that long in this world, given how noisy those freaking rodents are. <laughs> but here, in this situation, I'm opting to pick Lee at the end of the film as he makes that ultimate sacrifice to save his children and let them know just how much he truly loves them. And like I, that is that's a scene where, not gonna lie, I start to tear up a little bit when he lets out that scream. He is signed, "I have always loved you," and then he lets himself be killed. I'm I'm just an emotional wreck after watching that. Oh, me too. I'm feeling the tears creep up right now. <laughs> it's so great. It's just, you know, he satisfies his arc from a story writing perspective. It's ah, oh, it's a nice little bow. It's it's so sad, <laughs> but it's so beautiful where you're like, ah, oh, the ultimate sacrifice of being a parent. We are what they grow beyond. <laughs> quote Yoda. Well, and then that scene has an impact beyond lee's death and saving his children temporarily because now all the the parental responsibility has shifted to evelyn and now the whole mandate of protecting the children falls on her now now three children she has to worry oh, yeah, about and a new baby it's just that's that's a lot but she does it i mean by shooting the alien in the head 
and effectively saving her family. I think that sets her up as being super mom. Did you like the uh, epic foreshadowing at the beginning of the movie when the son was in the car driving the wheel, like moving the steering wheel? I was like, hey, Alexis, I bet that kid's going to end up driving the car at the end of the movie. And she turned and looked at me and went, how do you know? (laughs) (laughs) No, there was a lot of foreshadowing going on in this movie. A, the car, and then early on in the film, there was that pretty pretty significant lingering shot on that nail that Evelyn later steps on. So there's there's some pretty big foreshadowing going on in the film if you pay attention. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Hey, but you know, he he does a darn good job for an early director setting up the roles. So kudos to John Krasinski and team. Uh you got anything else yeah. you want to chat about before we go into the legacy? Nah, let's uh let's dive into the impact this film had. All right, diving in. Whoosh. so stupid Uh, so this film made money (laughs) made bank at the box office so against that 17 million dollar budget it grossed 340 million dollars oh my god so much money no that's i mean when you can make up 20 times your budget in box office returns i mean wow that's that's a lot dude i know he those producers are probably like, <laughs> they were like, ka-ching, 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 baby. <laughs> They're just like, we rich. Yes. Like, that is that is a win. And then, uh, you know, it was it was uh, reviewed very well on Rotten Tomatoes. They gave it a 95% based on 367 reviews. So take that for what you will. Even Metacritic gave it an 82 out of 100. Yeah, I I find the Metacritic rating to be a bit low, to be honest. And I think it was all those people who took to the IMDb goof section to complain about the parenting skills. (laughs) Yeah. That uh, also went to Metacritic to complain. (laughs) Well, Metacritic always is pretty low. I usually, sometimes when Rotten Tomatoes is too high, I look to Metacritic to find the truth in life. But (laughs) I think it was a little low in this. You know who was... you know who was a huge fan of this film? Who? was uh, Stephen King. He called it extraordinary. <laughs> hey, well, that's I guess that's good, right? He's he's happy. Well, anytime you can impress Stephen King, I think it's a win. I think that is. He's probably salty that he didn't write a book like this. <laughs> no, he's probably salty that he's had like 20 crappy adaptations yeah. of his great books. <laughs> and these guys come out and just write this brilliant. Hey. Well, thanks, Stephen King. You're 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 the bomb. Uh, it was also nominated for one Academy Award for best sound editing. Makes sense. only one. I know, insane, and it lost that award to uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, the uh, the Freddie Mercury Queen biopic from a couple of years ago. Uh, I didn't see that, so I can't really say on how I felt the sound was in that movie. I mean, it's Queen song, so I'm sure that's why it won. Everyone's like, <gasps> Queen. <laughs> yeah, uh, but also nominated for five Saturn Awards, including Best Horror Film, Best Performance by a Young Actor, Best Writing, Best Editing, and Best Special Effects, and it did win for Best Writing, so it gets a win in that column there. Oh, there you go. It is good writing, so kudos. Kudos to Scott Beck and Brian Woods, too. I mean, those guys, Brian Woods, yeah. they they penned a damn good script. And as we've mentioned periodically throughout the episode, the sequel is forthcoming. It was originally set for release back in March of of twenty twenty, but due to the COVID nineteen pandemic, it's ruined everything. The the sequel <laughs> was then pushed to September fourth of two thousand twenty. So at the time we're recording this, it's coming up in just another couple of months. Um, John Krasinski is set to return. The rest of the cast is set to return. Also, uh, Cillian Murphy and Jaiman Hansu were cast in the film. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, that'll be that'll be coming up in just a couple of months. Are, do you have any plans to go see the sequel? Oh, I, I will. I, I like this one, so I'm totally going to see the sequel. Yeah, that'll be on my list if, it is, uh, if it's safe to go back to the movie theaters. <laughs> right? Where you're not going to catch the vid. God, I don't need the Rona in my life right now. <laughs> That's right. I drank enough Corona on fourth anyways. Uh, oh, Lord. <laughs> all right. So, so you, you contracted Rona, just a different Rona. That's right. That's right. 
Oh, God. So, folks, with that, I think it's time to rate our movie. Yes, that's right, folks. With force-fed sci-fi's rating scale, we have the wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party. Quiet man Chris Rupp, what would you rate A Quiet Place? You know, for me, this is a film that checks a lot of boxes. There's horror, there's sci-fi, it's a family film, post-apocalyptic, and it all works well. I mean, the small cast is great. They perform well. They're part of many tender moments in a movie that's bookmarked by its tense moments. The themes are simple, even if you want to try and go political on them or really, really dig deep for that social commentary. Just take the theme for what it is. It's parenthood. Just leave it at that. Um, a Quiet Place isn't an experimental film, and I feel like it really a, a less experienced director like somebody like Krasinski could have made this an experimental film and had it totally be in silence. And yet it feels more like a polished effort from still a relatively new director. And I'm eager to see what John Krasinski's directing career looks like in the future. And as we've mentioned before, the sound design is the biggest attractor to this film. And to me, I think this deserves to be seen in the highest possible format available. And for that, I'm calling this a wood host a viewing party. <gasps> Oh man! <laughs> well, that's yeah, I. There, there is nothing about this film that I don't love, and I feel like it's a very, it's a high watermark to set for somebody like Krasinski who doesn't have a lot of directing experience to his name. And as I've said, I'm I'm eager to see what he does with his future as a director. I like it. Good, good. Um. What about you, Sean? What do you give to A Quiet Place? <laughs> uh, I think you highlighted all the great moments, you know, like we like we were saying throughout. Um, very well written. I think he has, like you said, great job for a kind of newish director. I think as a directing, he just checks all the box. Excellent job at introducing the characters, showing us what they're fighting for. Beautiful arcs. Very well written. Taking the chance in a quiet film. Uh, creatures utilized efficiently. I think he hit it all. You know, he hit the themes. You know, maybe people view it differently. Maybe that's a product of our time, perhaps. Uh, but overall, I think it's an incredible film. Great work of art. I would rate this as a would host a viewing party. It's just, it's, it's one of those just great films that I think you can watch regardless if you like any genre. Uh, there's something for everyone in this to take away. And I definitely think as I get older, I would like to review this film and take elements from the parenthood because I don't have kids now, but I'm sure it'll hit me on a different beat um, as I have kids and such. So I think it's great. This this film is bombastic. So bring your nails and get ready to step on because it's viewing party time. <laughs> I really hope that that's not going to be a party game when we do actually host the party game. See who can walk around with a bloody foot the longest. Oh, God. Bring your pregnant wives. Let's have birth in the tub. Jesus Christ. Yeah, let's see who can push out that baby the quickest. That is a horrible party game. That's... We are not doing that. <laughs> Terrible party. Uh, so there you have it folks our rating our review of uh quiet place chris it's time it is time to pick our next movie Ooh. we're gonna pick we're gonna enlist the help of our friendly random number generator ai major samantha <gasps> to help us pick from our list of 118 films and from that list she has selected number 86 it is a film from 1995, directed by Kevin Reynolds and starring Kevin Costner and Dennis Hopper. It is Waterworld. What? Ah, <laughs> oh, dude. Sorry, before we wrap this up, for some reason I was researching this freaking movie like a week ago. Maybe it's fate. Oh, God. <laughs> well, oh my, how your mind has perfect timing. <laughs> so that is going to be our movie for next time. 
And if you enjoyed today's show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at ForceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the ForceFed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. ForceFed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.